Welcome to part two of DLA Piper's Tech Law podcast series with me, Paul Hardy, Brexit Director at global business law firm DLA Piper. I and my colleague Richard Bonner, Chair of the firm's Brexit Committee, will be exploring the potential impact of Brexit on the fintech sector with the help of an eminent industry insider. Let me extend a warm welcome to Eric Mouilleron, who is CEO of Bankable. We're now going to look at the impact of Brexit on, on data flows and data management. It's a core part of any business. It's one of the, the main threats, collateral threats of Brexit to businesses, and it's a key part of the fintech sector business model. I'm going to ask Richard first off. Richard, could you explain what the current GDPR rules are in the UK and what the effect on data flow of Brexit might be? Well, I think you'd have to have been asleep for the last year not to have heard of the GDPR in the UK now. So the current position is that GDPR uh, regulates the processing of personal data right across the 28 uh, member states of the European Union in a uniform way, and also on the basis that there is a one-stop shop. So essentially, if in the UK you go through the UK regulator, which is the Information Commissioner's Office, then that is good enough as far as the rest of the European Union is concerned. And, And that is a Big, one of the positives, if you like, of, of the new regime. So what about Brexit? Um, well, first of all, if we assume for the moment that the withdrawal agreement is implemented, then there will be no immediate change whatsoever as far as uh, the transfer and uh, processing of personal data is concerned. At the end of the implementation or transition period, uh, what the UK has said is it once again in its terminology an ambitious and deep Uh, relationship with the European Union on the subject of data and essentially what it's looking for is a recognition that the UK data protection regime will be considered adequate and equivalent to that in the uh, in the EU 27. If that is so then data may continue to flow in in a a frictionless way uh, with the EU 27. The issue though is there is no certainty that the EU 27 will agree Uh, that the UK data protection regime will be considered adequate and equivalent. Uh, So again, as in everything else, uh, you have issues around uncertainty and you also have issues around dual regulation. So I think uh, although the UK would like, even in a uh, post-implementation world, that the UK regulator would be considered uh, a supervisory authority for GDPR purposes, again, there's no guarantee that that's going to be the case. So you have the challenge that Eric's already alluded to, that you're going to have to be, if you like, kite-marked in the UK and kite-marked in the, U- in the EU27 for data privacy purposes. Great, thank you. So a couple of questions, if I may, arising from that. I mean, many people listening to the podcast might think, well, if we as a country have implemented GDPR and our rules are consistent with EU rules, why is it questionable whether we'll get a, an adequacy decision? Can you shed some, some light on the politics of how an adequ- adequacy decision is, is reached? Well, I think uh, there, there's an issue around the fact that obviously in a post-transition or implementation world, the UK will not be subject to the jurisdiction of the, the European Union. Uh, there are also concerns uh, in the European Union about the access of security services here to, to personal data. So I think those are some of the, if you like, the technical issues that, that have been raised and will be raised by the European Union. And then I think you know, there are some wider political issues as well around uh, you know, the kind of you come back to the, 
the, the position that you can't be in the union or you can't be outside of the single market and have the benefits of being in the single market. And here we're talking about a single market of data. Even if the UK's data protection regime is no longer considered adequate or equivalent, as a UK company, if you are processing data for uh, in relation to subjects in the European Union, you will still in any event be subject to, to GDPR. So I think for businesses, it's, it's going to be quite unfortunate because you are going to, you know, at some stage in the future, and particularly if regulation in the UK diverges, you know, you will be subject to a kind of dual regulatory regime. And I think it, it kind of, it's an example of a broader question facing the UK in the medium to long term, which is, do we stick with a high quality uh, regulatory regime, which is consistent with the European Union, or do we diverge? Um, and to do our own thing, perhaps watering down standards, which might give us access to other markets, but then have other negative impacts. And that's an issue not just for data privacy, but for environmental and you know, all other areas of regulation. Yeah, it's the, it's, the big, it's the big divide between the policy of convergence and the policy of divergence. And at the moment, looking at the withdrawal agreement, the policy the UK ad has adopted is one of convergence with EU standards and if you look at the political declaration on, on the future relationship there's a best endeavours clause in there for the adequacy decision to be made by the Commission before the end of 2020. Whether that will be possible or not we, we wait to see. Well it's a good point because typically these adequacy decisions take two years and of course we are starting from a point where the UK is already compliant with the GDPR but by normal standards that, that would be a quite a challenging deadline. Eric, if I can turn to you now, can you explain how your business uses data and what the impact of data is on, on data usages is uh, in the fintech sector in the light of, of Brexit and what steps you've, you've taken? What we do with data is, uh, in fact, we are a processor of critical data. So we are declared to the, each regulator where we support banks and fintech as a processor of critical data. What we do is, was taboo actually uh, in 2010 when we started because uh, the question was Mr. Bank uh, CEO or Mr. Bank uh, PNL owner, uh, would you like a startup to process your data on their servers as opposed to your Chinese wall? Well, that's not the way we present things, but that's exactly what we do. Uh, now I think there's more adoption on that, but uh, of course we had to take measures to, I mean, we, innovation is great, but in data it's uh, compliance. If you're, you're either compliant or you're not compliant. So in our case, we, uh, we are, in fact, we respect all the banking standards. We have PCI DSS for cards, level one. We are ISO 27001. So the reason banks work with us is because our infrastructure is validated. <coughs> There's a penetration testing of our infrastructure, so we are compliant with them. They come to us on our platform to, to do those, those transactions. But on, on that, there's no innovation. We comply 200%. So we build a trans, trust environment, and this trust environment for us is uh, currently uh, in Luxembourg. Uh, we, uh, we are hosted where uh, all the large uh, e-commerce companies in the world are hosted. And as well, it's a, it's a company that belongs to the government. So unless the Luxembourg government got acquired, which is unlikely, we'll have stability from our, our partner. So we are in a, a tier four data center. So it's a, you know, like a defense industry. There's a distance between the two servers for main servers, a, a recovery one. So that it's, it's like, a, you know, like what banks would do. Yeah? So on that, we, we just follow the standards. Uh, and I think we chose, uh, you know, uh, not to be, if, and we were in the UK initially, but uh, I think for certain banks, they were more comfortable for us to operate from, uh, from the continent already three, four years ago. Mm. 
uh, and uh, and I think that that happens to be a good choice now. And within the sort of sector, the fintech sector more widely, are you aware of sort of market reaction to the sort of the threats of Brexit in terms of data policy and, and data management? Is it, is it a, an issue that concerns the fintech sector a lot? What we know today is that, uh, like uh, Richard said, there's GDPR that applies to everyone. One, uh, one scenario is to have the UK becoming the wild, wild west huh, as well, huh? so, uh, which actually could be positive for us. We don't know. Huh? But, uh, but uh, as you said as well previously, Richard, I think the, the main, in terms of, you know, the, the centre will move to New York more and more. I think that I completely agree with that. That's where capital markets are, are currently. We built something strong in London for decades. Uh, that, but you know, uh, remaining dominant is a big effort. It's not. It's like uh, you know, you, you need to maintain uh, uh, your 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 strength. And I think uh, uh, New York is uh, waiting. Uh, they're not waiting. They are in action to uh, to to capture whatever uh, firm could go to public to to their markets. Yeah. Richard, back to you, if I may. Let's just look at the two the two directions of, of flow of data. If you're sending data from the European Union post-Brexit to the UK, the European Union has to be satisfied that the UK regime is adequate with the EU's regime, mm. and that's what the adequacy decisions are about. What happens the other way around if you're sending data from the UK to the EU? What does the UK have to do to ensure that data can, can be sent to the EU? So I think, that, well, the UK obviously on, on day one will be implementing the GDPR as it currently is. So the UK, essentially the same rules will apply in reverse, but I think the UK, in contrast, has uh, already stated that it will take a, a positive view of, of data outflows from the UK to the EU27. So I, I think from, the, from in terms of the outflow of data, I don't think there's a concern to the EU27. The concern is more where data is coming from the EU27 back to the UK or into the UK. Yeah. And final question on, on, on this. What, if anything, a business is doing to prepare for the for the impact of no deal, where there's no adequacy decision, and we fall out of the EU's regime, what, what does a UK business do to deal with that? Well, I think, uh, as Eric said, it's all about compliance. And so um, certainly what we're seeing at the minute is a lot of businesses, some of them quite late in the day, um, looking at repapering their contracts so that um, they can, because there is a permission to um, transfer data between the EU and uh, third countries on, on the assumption that there's some uh, adequate contractual uh, mechanisms in place and a lot of businesses now are, are looking at doing that as a fallback. Eric, you've spoken about the innovation of the UK regulator making the UK an attractive location in which to start a, a fintech business. Um, can you talk in, in more practical terms about how that, that attitude, pro-innovation attitude has helped Bankable and also how the change that Brexit will bring might impact on the UK's reputation as being a, an innovative regulator? Yes, so uh, in terms of, uh, as I said previously, I think that the reason that we're, why we're here is that you can ask any kid to go on the website after two paragraphs, he will understand that the regulator is pro-innovation and for real, it's not words. There, there are some uh, initiatives in terms of a sandbox. So Bankable was uh, among uh, the first one to promote uh, a sandbox, so, so we could, uh, as an innovate uh, finance uh, founding so what, member. Just say yeah. exactly what sandbox is then. So sandbox, I think, for it's uh, it's uh, an environment uh, where the company, the regulator, will uh, will pilot 
uh, a project so we could see in uh, with real transaction what will uh, what will happen so we could uh, demonstrate it's uh, the state after slides you can have slides or you can have live transaction in an environment that is uh, regulated where you can you know demonstrate what you're after as a business so the problem of the sandbox is that if you don't have a very strong business case attached to it that becomes a real the sandbox that we all know it becomes what kids do you do a castle there's a wave and you lose your little castle, sand castle so uh, i think it's some, not something you can extend you have to restart from the sandbox you know so where we prefer to uh, in fact make pilots which is the same as a sandbox except the pilot could be extended to a deployment where a sandbox is just like a, a demo uh, uh, but I think the fact that the regulator is uh, promoting that is fantastic. There's already uh, multiple cohorts of entrepreneurs who went, who went through that. And that as well helped the regulator to be relevant. So the fact that we have a regulator that uh, listens uh, is, uh, is fantastic. Uh, I think uh, you know, in this country as well, there's uh, 1,500 uh, fintechs. So there was not 1,500 fintech companies uh, seven years ago. So that's a huge, uh, a huge success. That's not something we could have done without the support of the government or the regulator. Right. We, we were strategic, and that was clearly uh, the message so across the board. And, and can you give an example of how Bankable has used the sandbox? So uh, we did not use the sandbox. We, we were at the beginning of the definition of the sandbox yeah. with the regulator, with a, a lot of uh, members of Innovate Finance. Uh, what we use is more a pilot approach. So it's what I said before in the, in the past, uh, in order to demonstrate your software, you had to integrate it with, the, with the, 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 the software of the company, with the stack on the back end of the company. As we put that on our, on our own servers, we can decide to, to do a, a pilot and then progress that after. So we are in a capacity to demonstrate what we talk about, as opposed to tell you, pay me $2 million, you'll see one day, in, three, in two years, you'll see a great project, Except that's where I come from. So I know the problem is that uh, if you're a business, you have a business in mind, uh, you want things now. You don't want to wait two years because otherwise a competitor will go faster uh, or you lose, it, you'll be uh, irrelevant. So, the, so what we build is business cases where we deliver new net revenue to us and to the client ASAP. So that means time is of essence. You may have a competitor that is eating your lunch. You may have a, a change of a, a regulation. You have something impacting you. So you need to react quickly to, uh, to, to take the market. So let's say there, you know, there, there'll be people from the fintech sector listening to this podcast. Uh, I mean, what message can we give them about what the future approach of the UK regulator is going to be? I mean, can we say that, that they will remain a regulator of innovation? Or is there, is there a risk that Brexit will somehow ha have, a, have a sort of a deadening effect on the innovation capacity of the UK regulators? So the, the, the executive who made the, 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 the FCA where it is now, they're still there. So those people are there. They're, in a, they're, they're ambitious uh, for, for their country. They're ambitious for the industry. Uh, we have full respect for them. They're approachable as well. They're not in an ivory tower, so we can talk to them. Uh, now, their, their future depends on who will be their boss. And you're always dependent as a regulator from the Minister of Finance or from the government. Uh, so depending on the government that the UK uh, will have or end up uh, having, we'll, uh, that's, we'll have probably different direction. Yeah. Either inward looking or you know, even more global. I think for me, hopefully, there will be more partnership with uh, uh, Singapore, Belgium, uh, France, Germany, uh, 
enfin, uh, make sure that the, 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 you know, the, we, we keep to have uh, something aggressive in terms of uh, export uh, because the model is good and proven. Uh, but it's not necessarily the case that maybe now the, the, the direction may be different. But again, since the beginning of this, uh, this discussion, it's uncertainty, and I don't have a crystal ball. Richard, would you like to add anything to that? Well, I think it just, uh, I guess it illustrates the, uh, the, the wider point about uncertainty and the fact that business doesn't like uncertainty. And, and you know, I just attended a, a meeting this morning with ministers and, and some other business leaders, and there is a lot of concern not just about Brexit uncertainty but about wider political uncertainty and a kind of change of government which could bring about a, a even more of an anti-business sentiment than some might say, you know, exists at the moment. So I think that's definitely a big concern for business. Yeah. Eric, one final question that I think our, our listeners would be interested to hear your views on is what do you think the prospects are for the, for the fintech sector in the UK or in perhaps any other rival jurisdictions in, in Europe? Okay, so I think there's a, a study that was, uh, you know... Uh, uh, organized, thank you, that was uh, set up by uh, <clears throat> Innovate Finance about, uh, about uh, you know, a few quarters ago about who will be, uh, what will be the impact of Brexit. And uh, overall, there's 40% of respondents out of uh, you know, a few thousand people who said that they will reconsider relocation. So, uh, you know, a year ago, I was not part of this group because I don't like quitters. Uh, I, I, know, I know where I'm here, why I'm here. I know what I'm doing in the UK. I like the country. I like uh, uh, the vibes. I like the, a lot of things. But uh, I had to change my mind because the, the level of, uh, of uh, you know, uncertainty uh, is growing. Um, and uh, and there's, we need to be able to recruit and cope with our, with our growth. I think uh, our industry in the UK came from nothing in 2012 to 77,000 uh, employees currently. Uh, about 45%, again, uh, following uh, Innovate Finance uh, research, uh, are uh, non-EU, uh, non uh, so non-UK non nationals. And out of these uh, 42% that are not UK nationals, a third of them are not even EU. They come from uh, other places, uh, the US, South America, uh, or you know, Russia, Ukraine, or, or China, or Japan. So, uh, so that's, uh, that's a lot of people. So uh, the projection would be to have a, an, an ecosystem of 100,000 companies in, uh, by 2030. That may not be the case anymore. Uh, so so in be, in, instead of being aggressive, uh, that's going to be a defensive play. Uh, and I don't like defensive. I like offensive. So you, know, you mentioned the statistic there of, 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 of companies saying that they'd relocate. What, what are the likely jurisdictions that they'd re relocate to? What, what are the most attractive other jurisdictions for a fintech? So common sense, let's go as close as we can from the UK because there's, I don't see many people trying to... Uh, uh, you know, uh, leave forever the UK. So we're talking about building another, uh, you know, uh, another uh, set up another operation um, outside the UK. So the, the closest neighbors uh, that are pro-business, there's uh, Ireland, Belgium, Holland, and then of course there's the other, the big ones, the Germany and uh, and France. But uh, uh, there's issues there as well because, uh, you know, the UK is English-speaking, Ireland as well, and Belgium as well. It's part of the... You can, when you work with the regulator, it's in the, it could be done in English. It's not the case uh, everywhere. So uh, there's changes, but I, I doubt it is a, 
like that. So the neighbors are the the, the pro-business neighbors are the, the the usual suspect. Luxembourg is a, could be one as well. Uh, but quite frankly, all these jurisdictions, these jurisdictions, they're a bit sad to lose one of their cousin, a pro-business cousin. That's, I think, the, 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 the reality. I mean, uh, they are not uh, happy about uh, getting all this business and, uh, and the, having a, a weak UK. We want a strong UK. Yeah. Um, well, I think you make an interesting point because they often in, in the regulatory scene, the UK has been a voice of reason and a restraint. And I, I think for those businesses who are going into or who are in the EU27 going forward, there, there is a worry that without that restraint, um, you know, there will continue to be quite heavy regulation from, uh, from Brussels. Thank you both very much. It just leaves me to say thank you to Eric Mouilleron, CEO of Bankable. Thank you, Paul. And thank you to Richard Bonner, Chair of DLA Piper's Brexit Committee, for your fascinating insights into the impact of Brexit on the fintech sector. Do look out for further podcasts from the global business law firm DLA Piper as we explore the influence of regulation and emerging technologies in business and wider society. Other episodes are already available for you to listen to, either on our website or they may be accessed via the Apple Podcast app on iOS or SoundCloud, as well as other apps and services for Android or other phones.